Welcome to the podcast. Something a bit different this week because I just wanted to talk through some thoughts on a few recent developments and I'm going to touch on a, on a few areas of interest, pension freedom and retirement income, pension taxation, but also on more broadly on consumer engagement, value for money. I'm going to take a look at the stronger nudge and going to touch on the Treasury's plans for regulatory reform. And we'll try and do all that in less than four hours. So, yeah, hopefully we can get through that pretty quickly. I also thought I'd just something I haven't done on any of my podcasts before. I just wanted to give a mention to Lancat, uh, the business I work for. We're a consultancy providing insight and strategic advice to financial services businesses. And we're producing data, really, really good data, by the way. Shout out to my colleagues there on the financial advisor market, on platforms and investment propositions. And we also do PR and policy lobbying work for financial firms. So if any of that floats your boat, do get in touch. Okay, so just go back briefly to the spring statement of a few weeks ago. And something that's been picked up in various quarters was the small pots getting cashed out and the increased tax revenue that the Treasury now anticipates getting from that up from one3 to $1.7 billion in the 21-22 tax year and expected to continue. So I thought that was interesting because it suggests an acceleration in the rate of withdrawals. And the FCA has been pretty good at tracking behaviour around what people are doing with their pension pots. But alongside that, I've been doing some work on on a paper I'm going to put out in a month or two, looking at shortfalls in retirement incomes and measuring the, the data from the ONS up against the PLSAs, the Pension and Lifetime Savings Associations, model incomes. And you know, they've got their very low income, their moderate income, and their comfortable income. And using that as a yardstick, it, it's apparent to me that you know, in terms of the current retirement incomes we're currently enjoying, we're coming up some tens of billions of pounds a year short on what a good retirement looks like. And we also know that we're kind of past the point of peak DB and we're, we're heading down what Steve Webb's referred to as the ski slope of doom in terms of declining pension payouts. So I think that's all kind of interesting and suggests that not only are things not entirely definitely working according to plan now, but also they're going to get more complicated in the future. And I think back to when pension freedoms were introduced, 2015, and at the time, when I was working at Hargreaves Lansdowne, it was just like really popular. And we were doing focus groups and people were saying, yeah, I'm interested in pensions again. I really love this. Pensions are fantastic. I get to keep my money, which is fine. And for some people, that freedom to do what you like with your money works really well. Mostly people who've got lots of money. And, and there's no easy way to get the people who haven't got lots of money to the point where they have got lots of money. Some people just aren't going to get there. But I was struck looking at that at some of the how it's just brought it back into a sort of focus, some of the fundamental flaws in the system. Because auto enrollment, I think we can all agree, is, is working well. You know, that's a done deal now. And at least for employees, not so much for the self-employed, but for employees, you know, auto enrollment, fantastic. It needs some tweaking at the margins. The 2017 reforms need to be implemented. And you know, from the government's point of view. Right, we're heading for this cost of living crisis. Energy bills are going through the roof. Their popularity is a bit fragile. For all that Guy Opperman talks about, yes, yes, we're going to get on, and you know, we'll legislate for the 2017 reforms in this parliament, and we really, really mean it. And we want it, and you know, he, I, I believe him. 
At the same time, you can see from the government's point of view why they might want to drag their feet, because bringing particularly younger workers into the machine will result in a drop in their take-home pay. That's not going to be popular right now. So yes, you can legislate for it and make it happen a few years down the line. To a degree, therefore, solve the problem, but also kick the can down the road. But I also also understand why they're dragging their feet a bit on this and why they're struggling to find space in the legislative programme. And maybe we'll get the Queen's speech coming up shortly and it'll be in there. So then all fantastic. But given that auto enrolment is working and given that we've got this ongoing problem with pension freedoms, you know, the FCA has really struggled to understand how to regulate pension freedoms ever since they were introduced. They're still really uncomfortable with how those freedoms are managed and, you know, what the the bumpers down the, the bowling lanes need to look like to, to, to keep people safe. And so we've got retirement investment solutions being implemented at a regulatory level. But I, th- I look back to what George Osborne was trying to do in 2016 when he reviewed the tax basis of pensions. And to me, it still looks broken. So the whole system of tax relief put into the context of both auto-enrolment, which is now working, and the pension freedoms where there's a whole lot of money pouring out the system and some people have got lots of money and have done really well out of it and other people haven't and aren't. And if I were in the Treasury, I would be asking some pointed questions about whether tax relief is actually fit for purpose. And I get the fact that to reform pension tax relief, you need, you need one of three things. You either need a whole lot of political capital which the government briefly had in 2019, but has managed to dissipate quite a lot of it. Or you need a consensus on what the reform solution should look like. Or you need a crisis so you can just push the reform through and say, well, look, you know, this is an emergency like we had in 2010, where they, they changed a lot very quickly off the back of the 2008 banking crisis. And, you know, arguably in 2020, 21 with the pandemic, that was a moment when the Treasury could have said, look, this is a crisis. We need lots of money. We're going we're gonna to slash away at pension tax relief. But they didn't have the bandwidth for it. They didn't have the appetite for it. They probably hadn't done the work on it. So they didn't. So they missed that opportunity. But I look at that and I think, you know, there is still unfinished business there. The way the tax relief is granted up front in the context of now auto-enrollment pensions, and in the context of the pension freedoms, sooner or later, the Treasury kind of has to come back round on this one. And I'm kind of interested in stuff Henry Tapper's been banging on about around retirement CDC pensions, because actually, you know, what most people, not everybody, particularly wealthy people who just want control and freedom. And by the way, you know, 8% of the population speaks to a financial advisor. And I think a lot of the financial services system, it exists a bit in a bubble of we, we focus on that 8% of the population, the people getting advice, the people with money, and we forget about the 92%. I think actually what quite a lot of the 92% want is to something that looks more like a DB pension. They want, they want the certainty and guarantee. They don't want to have to think about this. And, and they have to now because DB pensions have gone. But really what they want is for someone else to take responsibility for managing all of this because it's complicated and it's not easy to think about. And I think increasingly what they're going to want is not freedom and flexibility. What they're going to want is just a reliable income. And I think in that context, a collective defined contribution type retirement income solution where the pension scheme takes responsibility for managing the flow of income to the members on an annual basis 
has some interesting potential. The big flaw with that is you have to kind of use death credits from from members to subsidise the, the members are still alive, you know, as you would with an annuity. And I'm just still irked by where we ended up with the death benefits on pension freedoms. The fact that you get all this tax relief, you get control of your pot, and then if you don't draw down on your pension, you just get to pass it on largely tax-free to the next generation. I've got a million pound pension and I can just pass it on to my kids. And you know, if they're canny with it, they'll pay very little tax on that money. And that's not well aligned with what the pension system was supposed to deliver in the first place. So when I hear Guy Opperman talking about how the private sector doesn't have much of a vision for pensions, I kind of get what he's talking about, that when you look at the big picture, there's still quite a lot of it that doesn't work. And I know one of the things he's preoccupied with is is consolidation, that we've got far too many pensions, whether it's DC pensions or certainly still thousands of DB pensions. And there's a lot of vested interest in keeping those pensions. And I think that's why the pace of consolidation hasn't been faster. And already we've got dozens of master trusts. You know, master trusts haven't been with us that long. And we've got a handful of really big ones. But then there's this long tail of several dozen smaller master trusts. We've still got loads of contract-based pensions. We've still got loads of single employer trust-based schemes, all of which exist for a good reason. But if I were Guy, I would be looking to drive that consolidation faster. And where I think that gets kind of interesting is with value for money and the work that's now going on with the value for money reporting requirements that are being introduced. And when you put that up alongside the consumer duty, there's two pretty big sticks there to hit the industry with. And I've spoken about consumer duty on another podcast that I recorded with the excellent Simon Harrington of Pimfer, and also my colleague Mike Barrett. And the, the, the podcast actually proved very popular in spite of Mike's involvement. So if you want to hear the full story on consumer duty, then look back through the archive and, and listen to that. But the key points were firms required to act to deliver good outcomes for retail customers. And then there's these cross-cutting rules about acting in good faith, avoiding foreseeable harm, and enabling and supporting retail customers to pursue their financial objectives. And then there are outcomes relating to the governance of products, price and value, consumer understanding, and consumer support. And that's a pretty chunky piece of regulation. That's a big stick to hit the industry with. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the FCA does that. And then you put alongside that the, the value for money metrics, the three elements of that. You know, are you delivering value for money in terms of costs and charges, in terms of the investment performance, and in terms of the services that you provide? your customer services, your customer helplines up to scratch, you know, are you going to make your customers wait half a day on the phone to, to get simple answers to simple questions, you know, all that kind of stuff. You put those two together, those are two really big sticks to beat the industry around the head with if the government and the regulators were minded to do so. And I think, you know, a lot depends on, on how these things are actually measured and reported on, and they could turn out to be a bit of a damn squib. But given that large bits of the industry still, I think, would struggle to prove that they are really up to scratch on some of those things I've just touched on, both in terms of consumer duty and in terms of value for money. I think how that plays through will be interesting to watch. And and what actually surprises me is that DWP, looking at the trust-based occupational pension sector, hasn't already driven this agenda harder if I was sitting in the FCA, if I was sitting in the, the pensions regulator, you know, answerable to the DWP, I would be thinking quite hard about how 
how hard I could hit the industry around the head with these tools, because I think there's the potential to, to cause quite a lot of pain with them. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then just staying with Guy Opperman, he was wanging on for ages about the statement season. He just he was like a dog with a bone and he wouldn't, wouldn't let it go. He wanted the industry to send out. And this kind of starts sort of moving away from prescriptive legislative controls of the industry more towards the other end of the telescope, which is the consumer engagement and what we can do to make consumer engagement work better. What he wanted was to have everybody down the pub, you know, down at the George in, in the beer garden on, on a Saturday afternoon in the sunshine with their pension statements going, oh, look, how much have you got? Where are you invested? Oh, how much charges are you paying? And I'm struggling really to see that vision sharply in focus. But, you know, credit to him for having a vision. One thing that became abundantly clear to me towards the end of last year was that uh, one thing he had managed to do was unite the industry and its in its really vehement opposition to this idea. No one liked the idea at all. And, you know, I have some sympathy because if you took his statement season idea to its end point, you'd end up with everybody, millions, tens of millions of, of paper statements going out in a week or two. And the bulge that would cause in businesses, it'd be like, you know, the snake swallowing a pig. It'd just, be, it'd just be like a nightmare in terms of how businesses would manage their resource flows around that. And then people would all get their statements and they'd all ring up and they wouldn't be able to get through because all the phone lines would be jammed because everyone else is ringing up. So it's like, yeah, I can see there are some issues with that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So I played a small but pivotal role in kind of trying to bridge that. Guy, to be fair to him, kind of responded and said, okay, let's have a chat about this. So we ended up with... DWP and the industry talking together and saying, okay, look, how can we find a solution to this? Because you, the industry, want to get your customers engaged. Now, that bit we agree on. And there's the minister saying, I want to get people engaged. So where, where can we find some common ground in all of this? And the outcome of that we saw uh, a few days ago with this joint announcement from the DWP and the ABI and the PLSA and various great and good members of the industry saying, behold, we're going to launch this engagement season. And I saw Pete Glancy from Scottish Widows or, or Lloyds Bank or whatever they call themselves these days talking about a thunderclap. It's like, wow, who wouldn't want one of those? And how uh, they're going to spend a million pounds. Yeah, that's right, a million pounds, six knots, to drive better engagement. But I can't help thinking back to the money advice service and what's name Tony Hobman when he was in charge and he kind of put all his chips on black. He just gambled on driving name awareness and raising the profile of the money advice service. And it turned out the casino won that night because really he didn't shift the dial at all in terms of, at least not meaningfully that I'm aware of, in terms of driving better consumer engagement with the money advice service at the time. And, and he spent tens of millions on that. So you know, I am a little sceptical about what this, this million quid from the financial services industry is actually going to do to drive better consumer engagement. But I do welcome the fact that the DWP and the pensions industry, and presumably MAPS as well, are all on board with let's focus our energies on a period of time every year when we really try and drive consumer awareness and engagement with retirement planning, retirement saving. And that's a good starting point. I would certainly like to see them focus on outcomes 
you know, it's really easy to say, look, look at all the, look at, look how busy I am. Look how many meetings I've been to this week. I must be doing a really good job. Yeah. But what actually matters is what you've achieved, right? So, so think in terms of outcomes, whether you're measuring people logging into their accounts or people using pension calculators to estimate what they're saving for time or people choosing to increase their contributions above, above the autonomic minimum. And, you know, can we go and talk to employers about doing sort of one-for-one matching incentive schemes where if you increase your contribution, I'll, I'll double it? Because we know that kind of stuff actually works in terms of increasing contributions. And if you want to increase people's retirement outcomes, the single most effective thing you can do by a country mile is get them to pay more in, right? So you can reduce charges or you can increase investment returns and do bits of stuff. But actually, these are, these are marginal gains. What really matters is just making sure you wedge enough money in early enough. And I'm just slightly concerned in all of that about MAPS' role in this because I did this, this, I did this review of MAPS last year and that was really interesting and I liked a lot of what I saw and I was really mindful of the fact that they had had a really tough journey in the, the early period of their existence. And they were certainly talking a good game when I, when I would see them about what they were doing there. But I would certainly like to see more evidence of MAPS actually delivering on that better engagement question. For me, that's a really important part of their role. And if they are not playing a really significant role in quarterbacking some of this work and, you know, they've done their what works stuff, they, they know a lot about how you engage people. They should be a really important element of the equation in working with the DWP and the industry to achieve good outcomes. So then I just wanted to talk stronger nudge, right? So I remember back in October 2018, the, the SCA and the pensions regulator announced that they were going to have a joint regulatory strategy now, to be fair, at the time, Andrew Bailey and Leslie Titcombe were in charge of the FCA and the pensions regulator, respectively. And they have both moved on to other, perhaps more exciting things to do. You know, we're under new management. But looking back at what they produced then and thinking about what's going on with the stronger nudge now, it's not immediately apparent to me that anyone at the FCA or the pensions regulator actually read that document they put out about a joint regulatory strategy, because what they've come up with on the nudge stuff appears to me to be two fundamentally different approaches to how things are done. So on the opt-out, for example, the FCA's rules allow consumers to opt out in the same communication with their provider. So I'm talking to my to Hargreaves Lansdowne. They've got my pension and I want to take some money out. And I can say to Hargreaves Lansdowne, I am not interested in talking to pension-wise. And Hargreaves Lansdowne will go, well, you really should, and we can book an appointment for you because that's a stronger nudge. And I'll say, no, no, thank you. You know, I used to work in pensions. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to go and talk to, to pension-wise. And they'll say, okay, fine. We've noted the fact that you're not interested. Well, if you're a trust-based scheme, if you're regulated by the DWP down through the pensions regulator, apparently you're not allowed to do that. You have to go out of the building and walk around the block and come back in and say, no, no, I definitely don't want the pension-wise service. So it has to be a separate communication. That doesn't entirely make sense to me that you would have different sets of rules on that. And also, I mean, this just does, does my head in a bit. The FCA is saying, even if you've taken regulated advice, we still have to do the nudge. We still have to really try and book an appointment in for you. And at one level, I kind of get it, even if you've had advice maybe that pension-wise appointment would still be useful to you. But 
frankly, if you've just been to see a financial advisor and they've taken regulatory responsibility for telling you what to do with your retirement savings, at that point, sending you off for a pension-wise appointment looks daft to me. Now, by contrast, the DWP has said, no, that's fine. Actually, the circumstances under which you can duck out of our system are actually quite a lot more relaxed. So you're going to have to do it in a separate communication. But if you're a member of a trust-based scheme and you say, oh, no, 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 I had I had some pension-wise last month, then apparently they will go, oh, okay, well, you don't count then. And it just kind of reminded me a bit of the Monty Python scene in Life of Brian when they're all about to go off for crucifixion and they're all being queuing up and there's a guy with a clipboard saying, it's crucifixion. Yes, okay, one, take one cross, queue on the left. Crucifixion, oh, no, no, they said I can go free. Oh, well, I'm very pleased with you, then off you go. Ha, no, only kidding, crucifixion, great, cross, queue on the left, right? So not a very well-joined... By the way, I went to see that film, uh, oh, this was a long time ago, I was like, must have been in my teens or something, like really long time ago. And I went to see that film, Life of Brian, in a cinema in France. I don't know why I was in I was in Paris. And I was the, literally the only English person in the cinema. And I could tell that because I was the only person who laughed all the way through. And I know it was in subtitles, so maybe it lost a bit in translation. But uh, you know, it just brought home to me the cultural differences between the English and the French, that the French just apparently did not find Monty Python funny. Uh, that's certainly how it appeared to me at the time. We'll see how much they really are true fans of fast because they've got their presidential elections running just now. So, so that could be fun. Anyway, the point is, under an occupational pension scheme, you could, in theory, just say, oh, no, no, I had some advice. I went, I had a pension-wise appointment last month. And then they'll go, oh, okay, fine. Well, yeah, we don't need to talk to you about that anymore. So that lack of joined-upness between the FCA and the DWP around the implementation of the pension-wise nudginess just doesn't look to me like you guys are on the same page when it comes to delivering a joint regulatory strategy. And you know, when you look at the joint regulatory strategy, it lots of warm words around the kind of things we should be doing and the kind of things we're going to focus on. It's the ways of working that's the bit that matters in terms of the joint bit of the regulatory strategy. You know, you can have a regulatory strategy, but the joint bit depends on you guys actively working together. And I'm sure you all have meetings together and you talk about stuff and send each other Christmas cards and so on. But I get a sense that that joint bit, that, that really collaborative approach to regulation kind of might be a little bit missing at the moment, but I hope I'm wrong. Um, in fact, you know, if you think I am, do tell. And then I'm also interested, staying with kind of regulatory matters, about the Treasury's future regulatory framework. And I don't know what the time frame on that is. We should hear something soonish. One of the things that just kind of excited me in that was that they said, look, subject to international standards, and this is as far as reasonably possible the FCA will be required to facilitate long-term growth and international competitiveness of the UK economy, including the financial services sector. And I'm personally less excited about the international competitiveness bit. I guess there's kind of a lot of kind of Brexit mindset going on there. And it was really noticeable, by the way, when they came out with the revision to the regulations around PRIPs, kids, that they really kind of went large on the, and this is a post-Brexit dividend. Now that we're outside Europe, we can make our own regulations. So I expect to hear more of that kind of rhetoric coming out as we see the, the Treasury's future regulatory framework emerging. But 
You know, I'm actually I'm really on board with a regulator that is is tasked with facilitating long-term growth because the FCA has got its statutory objectives to protect consumers and protect the integrity of financial markets and to promote competition. But based on those criteria, if no one actually engaged with the system, if no one invested in a pension or took out a mortgage, for the FCA, that would be job well done. You know, we only regulate what happens. You know, if no one does anything, well, it's not our problem, is it, mate? Except eventually, presumably, they'd have to start sacking staff because they'd have nothing to do. So I really like the idea of a regulator that is tasked with facilitating long-term growth. And I hope that that manifests itself in terms of a I mean, look, it's not their job to sell products for us, right? I get that. You know, that's our job. The, the regulator never shouldn't be a cheerleader for the industry. But I would love to see a regulator that took an active interest in markets growing and prospering and not just in trying to prevent harm in markets where activity is already going on. And in that context, you know, the <laughs> There's this on you know, advice guidance boundary. It's like when 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 you know when any two people who have any interest in financial regulation get together, sooner or later they start talking about the advice guidance boundary. I guess because we all know it hasn't quite landed where we'd like it to. And I come back to that point that there's 92% of the population that are not really engaging with the advisory sector to any meaningful extent. And you know, for all there are businesses like Hargreaves Lansdowne and others, and actually, you know, we're seeing AJ Bell with their uh, doddle. Do we call this a doddle? Um, and MG's money farm and others. You know, there are moves to expand business propositions to, to the non-advised chunk of the, the world. <laughs> and you know, given given what's happened to Harvey's Lansdowne's share price of late, you know, they, they really need to hope this works. But there's that 90%, 92%, whatever of the, the UK population who aren't advised and who need to be better served by the industry. And I do think allowing providers a degree more latitude to give customers guidance and to help them towards useful solutions would be a really, really good thing to see happen. And I, you know, I get the fact there are risks with that. But I think it's possible to do that in a way that makes clear where the boundaries of responsibility lie. And you know, it's good that the FCA is looking at the, the retirement journey and thinking about things like default funds on self-employed pensions as well as on workplace pensions. Let's make it easy for people to engage with the financial system and to do the good things, the things that we think will make their lives better. So all of this has the potential to be good news. What does strike me looking across the Treasury and the DWP and the FCA and the pensions regulator is how fragmented a lot of this is and how there are some you know, they're all leaning their weight on the industry in different ways. And some things are, are pretty certain and pretty clear and pretty immediate, like, for example, the stronger nudge. Some things are a lot less certain, like the automatic enrollment review. And at what point the, the government is very helpfully going to go and shovel more customers in our direction, which for some reason the industry thinks would be a good thing. So, And then when you come on to stuff like the, the pension freedoms and the value for money stuff, I think there's a lot of unfinished business there, as I think there is with pension taxation. But I think there is stuff to come. And we're, we're doing all of this in a really uncertain political context. You know, the government is clearly now increasingly focused on the next general election, which we're assuming is going to be in 2024, and what they can do to get themselves re-elected. And that will increasingly drive all their policy thinking. And so 
I think we're in for a really interesting, <laughs> fun and uncertain couple of years ahead. So look, I'm, I'm going to stop there. I hope you found this useful. If you've anything to add or you disagree with anything I've said, uh, then do please get in touch. And if you've liked it, then do please leave a favourable review. Thank you for listening.